Thanks, Pete. Uh, as we begin, let's just pray here together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, um, well, as we hear those songs, like a, like a flood, your love comes. We're thinking of floods because we're watching what's happening on the East Coast. And it's, flooding is an overwhelming thing. Um, it's, it's really hard to comprehend. And we need your help to comprehend that your grace is like that. We want your grace, Jesus, to flood into this place today, into people's lives today. Uh, we want people to feel your grace today. And this won't happen unless your Holy Spirit comes and gives us your grace. And so would you do that, Jesus, to glorify yourself and to glorify the Father and to literally help us, Jesus. I'm praying for, for my words today to be helpful to your people and that we can learn from an ancient text and we can walk away feeling as though we have been touched by God. I ask all these things in your awesome and holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome everyone. My name is Trev. If you are brand new to Urban Grace, and as I always say, if you're not brand new to Urban Grace, my name is still Trev. And uh, we're glad that you're here. Glad that you've joined us for this series on Galatians. Pretty exciting uh, series as far as I'm concerned because it's all about one of my favorite things. I think the most important news of all time, that is the gospel. It's right there laid out uh, for you in beautiful Helvetica bold. And uh, the, the series of Galatians is all about the gospel. And so if you need some background information, even what we're saying this morning, I think uh, our tech guys are getting that podcast up right away. And uh, you can catch up there. Uh, I will try to catch you up to speed, but before I do, I want to remind you to grab one of those Connect cards if we have any left. Are we right out of the Connect cards? Um, I'm getting, we, we got a couple. Um, when the offering plates are passed around, they're, they're little like cream-colored, beautiful printed cards uh, on a handmade, not a handmade thing, a homemade computer thing printed. Um, they're homemade printed. There we go. Uh, fill one of those out if you want to get connected to what we would say is is maybe 65 or 70% of what Urban Grace is about. If, if this is the only place you connect with Urban Grace, we think that's wonderful, but we also think that you're missing out on a big, a huge portion, over 50% portion of what Urban Grace is really about, which is taking the gospel and working it out in a specific community of people. Jesus calls us to community. He calls us to live out His mission in community with one another. That's tough. That's why we don't do it, right? We don't gather together because it's difficult, it's hard, we don't get along, the people in our group are annoying, and all that kind of stuff. But Jesus calls us to it. And that is the place that He wants us to work out the gospel. And that's really important to us at Urban Grace. And so if you want to get connected to one of those groups, please fill out one of those cards, drop it in the offering plate, and we'll do our best to get you connected uh, to a group. Uh, we have three groups. Uh, they meet on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So we did that so that it could be helpful to some of your schedules. Again, so that you don't have the excuses that you, you would normally have. Uh, there are days of the week that you can pick and choose and locations in the city. That's also deliberate. Uh, but that's really important to us. And every couple of weeks, I want to just again remind you that that is key to what we're doing. So if you walk away and you have a lot of questions and you say, yeah, but how does this apply to my life? We would say perfect opportunity for you to get involved in a city group 
And you can work this gospel out in the context of a community that will love you, pray for you, hold you accountable, and push the gospel deeper into your life. That's what community is for. So I just want to say that as we begin. And then as just a totally blank segue, I just want to ask you, how many of you are rules people? How many of you love rules? So when you play a game, like you have that fun game and you pull out the games, you're the person who goes directly to the instructions on how to play the game, right? You're that person. You're like, well, we're not playing this game the correct way. You need, you know, 30 seconds uh, instead of 25 that you're using or whatever. You can't, you know, when you pass the buzzer, you have to pass it. We played a game recently and we had the rules people show up in our group. And the rules people are like, hold on a second. Before we begin, let's get the rules straight here. I'm not one of the rules people. So I'm on the other side. How many of you don't like the rules people? Right? You, you look at these The rules people are the kind, they love referees. Right? They feel bad for the referees in sports. Actually, you want to be a referee secretly. When you gather together for sports, if you're a rules person and you're a guy, you're the one who actually, instead of playing, would rather referee and tell people what they're doing wrong. I'm opposite of that. I don't care for the rules people that much. I'm the guy who loves to go to a city without a map and figure out my way. Anyone like that? And you're frustrated by the rules people in your life that tell you you should really get a map so you know where you're going. I think it's fun not to have a map. Any, any guys with me? Is that just being a guy or a, a, just not a rules thing? Okay, so there's, there's, there's these two types of people. Those who are rules people. And some of you actually, when it comes to your Christian life, you're like... Goodness, I wish that Christianity was about rules because it would be way easier. Anyone like secretly believe that? Don't put up your hand and, and, you know, draw attention to yourself. But you secretly wish that Christianity was just a set of rules that you could follow and, or not follow. That would just make it easier for your life, for your brain. How many of you would be frustrated if Christianity was about that? It should be all of you. And the reason why I say that is because in our text today, this is the argument that's going on. Paul, who is the writer of this book, this book of Galatians, he is writing to a group of churches that grew up being rules religion. Like it was about the law, right? It was about we do this, we don't do this. You can eat this, you can't eat this. You can't wear this, you can wear this. You can wear this, but only in this time. And for many of them, some of them had full-time jobs at this. If you look in the scriptures and you see Pharisees or teachers of the law, there were full-time people who were like, you could do this or you couldn't do this. And it was like, you didn't even need to decide. You just go to the teacher of the law or the Pharisee or whatever it was. You say, can I do this or can I not do this? In the same way that many Jews would now still go to a rabbi or many people would go to a priest in the Catholic church or Anglican church and say, am I allowed to do this or am I not allowed to do this? Should I do this under God or should I not do this? And this... this church that Paul had planted and he had preached the gospel, they, they were formally rules people or they were in the context of a bunch of rules people. And, and what happened was his false teachers came in and Paul who preached the gospel, which is not a rules religion, by the way, I hope you pick up on this after a while, that the gospel is not about rules, what you do. The gospel is what, what Jesus does for us. And Paul had to fight against the rules people, but he had to do it in a way that gave him some credibility. He had to explain how the rules work. Because 
there were some of you that you, you'll say, <laughs> you're all laughing at us, but if there weren't no rules, boy, you'd have trouble driving. You're that kind of person, right? You love, that there, you love to prove that there's rules. You say, well, without rules, you can't play the game properly. And you know what? You're right. It doesn't work that way very well. Recently, we played a game of flag football. And I pull, I'm not a rules guy, but I pulled out a list of rules for the flag football. And what I said was, the problem is we all have rules. We don't like rules. But if we don't have rules, we, we really won't play a game. We'll have an argument, right? Is that out of bounds? Is that not out of bounds? Is that a touchdown? Is that not a touchdown? For those of you who are not sports people, don't worry about it. I'll use other illustrations that aren't sports related. Paul has this argument against the rules people that are basically saying to Paul, look, you talk about faith. You talk about the access to God through faith. You talk about the blessing. You talk about the promise. But what about the law? What about the law? What? What's the reason for the law then? Why did the law even come into being? Why do we even have these rules? I don't know if you've noticed. Who's ever read through the Bible before? Who's read parts of the Bible before, especially the Old Testament? Have you noticed they're rule heavy? Have any, has anyone noticed that? You picked, open the Bible and you're like, man, this, it seems like a lot of stuff to do and not to do in the Old Testament. It's just filled with rules. And so what you do is because they don't seem to apply to you or someone has said they're totally obsolete, you don't need to deal with them anymore, you go, well, I don't, obviously that's, I don't need to read you know, 90% of my Bible because that's not applicable to me anymore. Anyone ever felt that way? I'm so glad you showed up today because that's exactly what Paul is preaching about. He's basically saying, look at You've got to understand the place for the law, that, the, that, that you don't get blessings of the gospel by following rules, but you've got to understand the rightful place of these rules, of the law. And so let's look at the text together. We're in week nine of our series in the gospel. And if you're new or literally haven't been paying attention, uh, we're talking a lot about the gospel. We've got to talk about what the gospel really is. I'm not making any assumptions here. There, I make very... Uh, Very few assumptions for you on Sunday morning about what your background is. I make the assumption you're not going to show up in sweats, but that's the only assumption I make, usually. I don't assume that you know anything about your Bible. I don't assume that you've got a grasp of the gospel. And I don't assume you've heard it correctly if you've heard me say it before. So here's what the gospel is. Short form, Tim Keller says, the gospel is a message that we have been rescued from peril. The gospel is a message that we as people have been rescued from our own sin, from ourselves, and saved to something. God, who created us to be in relationship with Him, He created Adam and Eve. He created them perfect. He actually gave them choices. If I was God, I wouldn't have given them the choices that they had. But He gave them the choice to obey Him or to disobey Him. In fact, what He said is, you can do anything you want in this garden, just don't eat from that tree. And they said, no, we would like to try to see what it's like to eat from that tree. Reminds me a lot of raising small children. It does. Any of you who have had small children or taken care of small children, or perhaps that's why you don't have small children, is because you see what small children are actually like. They don't seem to care about the things they can do. They want to find out what they can't do and see how far they can come to that line. This always happens with my three-year-old. It's hilarious, kind of. It's hilarious if you're not her dad, right? It's like, don't touch that. And she'll be like, how close can I get to it? 
before I don't touch it. This is Adam and, Adam and Eve. They, they, they're told, only this tree, because what this tree will do, this tree will kill you. And Satan comes along, preaches a sermon and says, eh, it won't really kill you, will it? Come on. Is that what God really said? Which, by the way, as an aside, is constantly the message that you'll receive from the culture. Did God really say that? You'll hear that all the time. And so Adam and Eve, not wanting to obey God's perfect plan, disobeyed them. And you and I kind of maybe snicker at them and say, well, if I was, you know, I, I, again, in our family devotional time, I, was, I said to my daughters, you know, would you eat the apple? And they're like, I don't like apples, so of course I wouldn't eat the apple. Right? Missing the point that, that it, it wasn't really the apple that was the issue. It was the wanting to be like God because that's what Satan promised. He said, if you eat this apple, you'll be a lot like God, but you'll die. And they'll say, oh, good trade. Let's eat the apple. And you and I snicker at Adam and Eve and say, I wouldn't have eaten the apple. Well, yes, you would have. In fact, you probably ate one this morning. I don't mean that physically. I mean that spiritually. You were tempted to act like God, and the, the serpent whispered in your ear, did God really say that? Do you really have to obey that? Are you really like... And you listen to the serpent instead. And so, literally, we all have sinned. Yes, Adam and Eve sinned and, and created this long line of people who left God. And you and I are amongst those people, and the gospel is a message that rescues us from leaving God. And through faith in Jesus Christ, not through works for Jesus Christ, not through going to church, but through faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, He paid the price for your sin, and you are a sinner, and you need a Savior, and you believe that Savior is ultimately Jesus. And He did all the work for you. You just had to believe. That's the gospel, friends. It's news. If you're not a Christian, you need to make a decision about what you think about that very news right there. And my hope is, if you're not a Christian, that you take the rest of the morning, you can throw away everything else I say, figure out what you think about that. That's the most important thing about you this morning. What you think about that news right there. That God, through Jesus Christ, rescued you from peril. Through His work on the cross. If you believe that, you can say, I am a Christian. That's what the Bible says. I can't tell you you're a Christian. Your friends can't tell you you're a Christian. Even you can't tell you you're a Christian. Ultimately, only God will know if you truly believe that. But if you do, the Bible says, the Holy Spirit will come into your life and will assure you that you believe this. And for those of you who know you're Christians, but you can't even explain it, that's evidence that you are Christians because the Holy Spirit has come upon you and assured you in your faith and said, yes, you are in my kingdom. You are one of my children. You are someone who has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, what happens is we go two ways on the gospel, right? And, and I, if I was a better carpenter, I would have done one more letter and, and put a plus or a minus here, Okay? Because this is what always happens to us as Christians. Once we hear the gospel, we are tempted to put a plus sign behind here or to put a minus sign behind here. We're tempted to put a plus sign when we are those rules people and we feel like, no, 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 we shouldn't receive the gospel just through faith. We have to earn it. Have you ever received a gift from someone and felt just so guilty that you just want to do something for them to pay them for that gift? Anyone? 
like me ever have that inside of you? Or like, oh, Christmas time is coming, friends. And this feeling is going to hit you again where someone's going to give you a gift that's more expensive than the one that you wanted to give them. And you're going to go out and take that gift and return it to get a gift that's of equal value so that you can pay that person back for the free gift that they're trying to give you. Right? Don't laugh. You're thinking it with somebody in your life. That's gospel plus. That's saying, no, no, what Jesus has done on the cross and paid for the sins is not enough. I need to do something for Jesus. I need to prove that I love him, so I'll do these things. And by doing these things, it will be evidence that now I for sure love Jesus. Before I mostly love Jesus, but now for sure I love Jesus. That's gospel plus. That's what Paul is fighting against in Scripture. Because these people, surprisingly to you, but not to the Jews, They were adding circumcision to the end of the gospel. (laughs) I wouldn't have added that myself. If you don't know what circumcision is, Google it yourself and don't tell anyone what you're Googling, please. Because it's uncomfortable for all of us. But this was the sign that was one of the rules that was given to all people. They said, when you believe in God in the Old Testament, it began with Abraham. He said, get circumcised, show people Do something physical to your body and your family line so that you know, literally, every time you go to the bathroom, every time you procreate, you belong to God. I'm not making this stuff up. This is true. This is real. This is why circumcision was the mark. But these teachers came in, and because they are long line, long history of rule lovers, they said, well, wait a second. For centuries, we have been getting circumcised to prove our love for God. Now that we believe that Jesus is the true sacrifice, now that we believe Jesus is the true way, that's good, but don't we still have to do this? In fact, you really should do this. And if if I had to do it, you're going to have to do it. You ever feel that way? Someone in your office gets like, they get hired on December 23rd and they get to go to the Christmas party just like you do and you got hired like three years ago and they get all the cake and all the booze that you get or wine depend- or grape juice depending on your convictions. Right? Because we're like this. It's, if I had to, you, you're going to have to. Or we do this. And this is what's happening a lot in our culture. We do gospel minus. What does that mean? That means we take, around, we take away some of the harsh corners of the gospel. Anyone have a problem with like understanding they're a really, really bad sinner? This is a big problem in my life. There are so many times where I admit that I'm a sinner and then kind of like as an asterisk to God, I'm kind of like, but I'm not that bad, right? right this, is, this is, again, my children. <laughs> I know I'm disobedient, Dad, but I'm not that i'm not nearly as disobedient as my little sister or my old older sister and this gives kind of this credibility so we have this tendency to want to minus from the gospel to take things away and so we preach the gospel and this is what the gospel sounds like god loves you and has a plan for your life now is that true anyone is that true yes it's true but it's not the whole complete gospel It's taking away the fact that you have offended God with your sin. And He loves you in spite of that. And He chooses you in spite of that. And He dies for you in spite of that. Or we just say that, you know, God is who you think God is. God is whatever, you know, that's pretty common too. God is whatever way you can find a God. 
unfortunately, that's not the gospel again. Jesus said, there's one way now. There's one truth. There's one life. It's through me. If you want to get to God, you've got to go through me. There's not an option here. It's not A, B, or C. It's not Jesus or Buddha or John Smith or whatever his name is. It's me, Jesus Christ. That's the only way you get to God. This sounds really harsh for those of us who aren't used to this, but this is what the gospel says. And when we take away from that, that's gospel minus. And so this is how we combat and and misrepresent the gospel. And this is exactly what's happening in Galatians, uh, the Galatian area. And so let's first look at the promise, because what what Paul is then describing is, I I want to, to look at history here and talk about how the gospel really has been something that God has been at work throughout the entire Bible. Anyone know their Bible relatively well? What's the first book of the Bible? Anyone know? Genesis. Most people, even if you're not a Christian, know that. Genesis. And so very early in Genesis, right after the fall in Genesis chapter 12, God does something. God does it, mind you. Not anyone else does it. God comes to a man named Abram at the time. God changed his name because he also changed his life. So God comes to Abraham, and what he says to Abraham, or Abram, is, let's look at the uh, verses, eventually. He says, go from your country and your kindred, your family, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So I don't know if you've noticed, maybe it sounds like there's some work involved there for Abraham, but not really. What he does is basically say, okay God, if that's what you say, then that's what's going to happen. That's the promise that's talked about in the text here. The promise that is given to Abraham is not based upon what Abraham does. It's based upon what God does. So see, it's all God. He says, go, to your con- go from your country and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so that you will be a blessing. He doesn't even say, if you go, I will do that. He just says, go and I will do it. And Abraham believes this and the Bible says later on in Hebrews, God credits him as credits that act of faith as righteousness. Flip the next side, Fabian. Then he continues on in Genesis 15. So not much longer, he says, and he brought him outside, that is Abraham, outside the tent. So for some of us, we have our north face tents and we just open it up. So, and he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So as Abraham's even going and God says, I'm going to do this, look up at the sky. You ever try to, you guys know what a popcorn ceiling is, by the way? 1980 called, they want their popcorn ceiling back. Anyways, it's that little spatter that's on the ceiling that if you scrape it, like it's disaster to try to replace. It's made of like little drywall mud. And sometimes they put sparklies if you're from the 70s in it. And I remember looking up and thinking like, what would it be like to try and count all these little popcorn ceiling pieces? Pretty impossible. You'd actually lose count. I think that's what God's saying. Like, He's not saying like, go and count them all. He's like, take a shot at it. And Abraham, who's, I don't know how smart he is, but he was smart enough to go, probably can't count them, but 
God's pretty serious here. He's come to me again. And before I'm even in the place, he says, that's, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless all kinds of people through you. You're going to start something and the kingdom is just going to be so big, it's going to be really hard to count. And so what, what Paul is saying is that this, this promise that's given to Abraham actually is fulfilled in Christ. And so you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, are going to receive everything that's promised through Abraham. This is the promise. But then he says 430 years later, the law comes. And that's why the text says that. 430 years later, what what God does is He brings Abraham into this land. And this land doesn't look like the land that that looks great. You know, some of us are like, oh, I'd love my own piece of property. But if that piece of property was located where the dump was, you'd be like, well, hmm, I'd love another piece of property that's developed. And this is kind of Abraham. He was... He was brought to a land that was undeveloped and didn't, he didn't know what it would look like yet. And through faith, he just believed that God would do this. And God said, that is all I need. That's all I'm looking for is your faith here. And then, and then what happened is God, through some amazing circumstances, gave Abraham and his 80 or 90-year-old wife a baby. I don't know if you know how this works, but it doesn't work like that. For those of you who are just having babies, you know, you hit your 30s and you're starting to think, I better have my babies now before I get too old for this. That's very normal. Well, Sarah's 90 and and God's like, I'm going to bless you with a baby, a son, who's then going to reproduce and reproduce and reproduce and this is how it's going to happen. And Sarah's like, whatever. And God's like, did you just laugh there? And she's like, no. And and she's like, God's like, yeah, I kind of heard you laugh. And actually, that's the name Isaac. It means laughter. And so through Isaac then becomes this long succession of people. This actually happens. You get millions of people. And by the time you get to 430 years where the people are in Egypt, there's like over a million people already through this one miraculous son. And this is happening. People see it. So when they look in Genesis and they see this, this thing, and they get to Exodus, if you live in that time of Exodus, you're like, wow, God did an amazing thing here, a promise that just God did for God's reasons. God did it. We didn't do it. God did it. And Paul says, then the law came afterwards. The reason why Paul said that was because these people were kind of saying, the law is here and the promise is here. Because the law has come, it, 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 it kind of supersedes the promise. And Paul's like, well, wait a second. These don't offset. This is not the NFL where two penalties offset each other and we redo the down. That's not how this works. You have the first promise still intact. You have the law still intact. These two covenants. One doesn't annul the other covenant. I know it's a complicated text, so I'm trying to uncomplicate it as best as I can for you. Paul says that doesn't even work in real life. If you go into the court of law and someone's die, died and they pull out their last will and testament after they have died, you don't say, well, hmm, boy, I'd like it if more property went to that other son than this son. You don't get to do that in the court of law, do you? Once you sign your will, once you sign that covenant, once you sign that document, it is intact. It stays there. And that's what Paul's saying. No, 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 the promise has stayed intact. The law comes afterwards and 
this, give me some time here, he says, but I'm going to make sure you understand the proper place for the law. So when you try and bring up like super, circumcision is more important than a promise, he's like, no. Circumcision came long after the promise did. And so did the law, by the way, even through a different guy. It wasn't Abraham, it was Moses who brings the law. And so in, in the desert, God does something miraculous through Moses as well. He calls his people out to worship him in the desert and he sends Moses up a mountain so that he can get the law. We would call it the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words literally in Scripture. And these are instructions of God's law. This is how God wants people to run things. And from then on, people who are rules-bent, and some of us, I think all of us in some place in our life are rules-bent. And we, we default back to the law, even though God has set us free from the restrictions of the law. And what Paul is saying in the text is, the promises of Jesus Christ are like the promise to Abraham, not like the law of Moses. He makes it very clear that the way Christianity works is all like the promise to Abraham and not like the law to Moses. I mean that when I say that. Because the next sentence that Paul says, but then why the law, right? He, he has to answer this question because that's your question right now. Well, wait a second. If Christianity is, I just believe and God credits it to me as righteousness, then why all these rules? And that's your question. That's my question. That's why I was so excited to talk about this text. I was like, it's finally starting to really make sense here. Because Paul gives good reasons why the law comes. But before we get there, let's try and make some applications here. Because the problem is that you and I, even though we have been told that Christianity is a promised-based religion that is based upon what God does for us, we bring the law back into our lives and say to God, that's not the best way to do things. I want to live by the law. Anyone do that? Maybe not theologically, maybe not in your brain, but functionally you do it in your life. And this is why many times you will obey God, not because you love God, but because you are afraid that if you disobey Him, He'll do something to you. Anyone ever terrified to sin, not because they don't want to offend God, but because they're like, I'll be in a lot of trouble then. The rules are here and I disobey the rules and I'm a rules person. I know what happens to people who don't get the rules, who don't obey the rules. And because our brains can't seem to comprehend that it's through faith, by faith alone, that we are saved, we want to functionally bring back that rules-based religion into our lives. And so we find ourselves religions or we find ourselves habits. If you've ever tried to read your Bible on a regular basis, you've probably battled with this idea of getting up and reading your Bible, not so that you can get to know God better, but so that you can get through your Bible reading plan and so God can get off your back. Anyone ever felt like that? No one? It's just me? Happens to me regularly. I'm tempted to do things for God. I'm tempted to feel better about myself because of what I have done for God. I confess to you openly that sometimes on Sunday afternoons I will go home and feel closer to God, not because God loves me, but because I preach the gospel for God. 
And I need the gospel as much as you do to, to go. It's not based upon what I do for God. That is not get my standing with God. My standing is established by Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for my sin, brought me closer to God through that death and resurrection and gave me his Holy Spirit as a free gift because I believed him. I mean, that's why grace is amazing. This should boggle your mind. You should feel like your head hurts when you really start to get this. This doesn't make sense. The world does not work that way. You cannot go into your office tomorrow and your boss will say, for the rest of your life, I will give you a salary regardless of what you do. If you have that job, let me know. I'd like to have it. Any of you have a job like that? It doesn't work like that, does it? If we, even if we have a spouse or a girlfriend or a boyfriend that we love and, and we rarely would we ever say to them, I will love you no matter what you do. We've probably got something in our mind that was like, yeah, I'll love you for the most part except for if you do this and I'll never love you. And the, the relationships that we have, the functioning in our life, it doesn't work that way. And that's why grace is so hard to comprehend. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit of God to help us with this. And so I always say, if you don't understand that, you, you need to pray. Jesus, through your Holy Spirit, can you get my mind around this? Can you help me believe this? Can you give me faith? The Bible actually says faith is a gift from God. Ask for it. You can ask for a gift. You can't earn it, though. That's how, the, that's how the gospel works. And so I want you to think, not again, and some of you, this is old news. I've said this before. You know the gospel. You've heard the gospel. You believe the gospel, but you want the law back. And you're functionally living like the law still exists. And you need today to repent of that. And you need to recognize today that's not the true gospel. And the voices that you hear, obey me or else you'll lose your place with God, is not God whispering to you. That's the serpent who slyly said, did God really say it's by faith? Did God really say you're justified on your faith? Didn't he add a little teeny little bit of works to that? No, he didn't. He did not do that. That's not why he added works, so that you could earn your way to God. He added works for another different reason, and that's the next point. Why the law then? Why the law then? Now remember... I remember watching the movie The Mission. Who's seen the movie The Mission? I'm, what? Really? You guys got to watch more movies. Mission's a great movie. Um, it's a great movie, but it's a, it's a sad story. Uh, I'm not going to spoil everything about the movie, but it's, it's set, I don't know, in the 1600s. Is that right? Not about that? 1600s, 1700s, somewhere in there? And uh, it's, it's a movie about a, a man who is a slave trader. And as a slave trader, he does some really, really nasty things. And one of the things that he does is, is he murders his, his own brother. And he feels terribly guilty about this. And there's nothing that he can do to atone for his own sin. Notice the 
the great stories are always really Bible stories anyways, just so that you know. And he can't atone for his sins, so what does he do? He joins the church and becomes Jesuit. Because he's trying, to, he's trying to work his way toward God. He's trying to work God's guilt off his back. But the problem is he's trying to do it himself. And so there's some amazing footage where um, in, in, the, in the Jesuit church, they, they have this thing called penance. Now, it sounds like a really good idea, penance, but penance is an anti-gospel type of thing to do. It really leads you away from the gospel. And what happens is the, the priest says, I know you're really sorry, so to help you feel better about your burden, I'll give you a big bag, a net fish bag of pots and pans, and you've got to carry this up the mountain in the rain. And so this guy, is, it's Robert De Niro. So, I mean, Bobby De Niro, come on, it's a great movie, you guys. And he's scrambling up in the rain and he's clawing his way up the hill and he's got this big pots and pans thing and he's slipping and falling and, you know, there's the emotional piano and violin in the background. It's just amazing. And then there's this scene where the, the, the Jesuit priest is kind of like, finally you've paid enough dues and he, he cuts the bag off of De Niro's back. And, you know, it's like, it's really dramatic. So it's like three strands, right? It's like, boom, 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 and then it all falls off And the problem is, you are living like this sometimes. You don't believe that God gave you a free gift of grace. And you're like, no, 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 I've got to get my own bag of pots and pans. I've got to serve in my church. I've got to play in the band. I've got to greet people at the door. I've got to come to church every Sunday. I've got to go to community group. I've got to do this. I've got to love my wife and teach the gospel to my children. Those things are all good things to do, and they're helpful things to do, and they are necessary to your growth. But you treat it like the bag that will pay God back for the free gift of grace that he's trying to give you. And preaching the gospel should feel a lot like Robert De Niro getting that bag cut off his back. I want you to walk out of here today going, oh man, my, light is, uh, my load is a lot lighter today. Because I know that what I do does not create my standing before God. And so why the law then? Well, we've got to talk about that. See, here, here's, here's the purpose of the law. And what I hope is that you go back to some of these laws and you, you have this feeling like, oh, aren't, I, aren't you glad you don't have to drag that law around? That's how you should be able to read the Old Testament. So when you read the Old Testament, it shouldn't be boring to you. It should be like, oh man, this is amazing that I don't have to bring a year old lamb to my church, have its throat slit and watch it die and burn to death. Oh, that's awesome. It's all done through Jesus. Oh, man, I'm so glad that every time I, you know, every, every time I do this, I don't have to wait seven days to go back to church. That's how you should be able to read your Old Testament. You should look at the stories of God and go, look at all the stuff they had to do, that God asked them to do, not to earn their salvation. He just asked them to do it. And that's, that's there for a number of reasons, and I'll list them as quickly as I possibly can. So... You know how like dog years is like multiplied by seven? So I say short. Most preachers would say short. Mine's like multiplied by seven. So, First of all, this is what the law does. The law doesn't bring salvation, but it does show us our need for it. Romans 3.20. Here's what the purpose of the law does, is it shows you how, how sinful you are. If you've ever read through the Ten Commandments, you know exactly how I feel. Does it not pierce you deep in your heart and you're like, I could never obey this? 
This is an absolute disaster. You go, well, no other images before God. Don't take God's name in vain. Yep, broke that one. Take Sabbath day holy. I break that weekly. Honor your father and mother. I don't know about you. I love my parents and they're good parents, but I have dishonored them a number of times. Then take the Ten Commandments and you read them in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Anyone ever done that? Where God begins to, through Jesus, pull out what's really behind these. And Jesus says, you know, the Bible says, you've heard it say, don't murder. But I tell you, when you hate someone in your heart, it's as damning as murder is. Whoa. Anyone ever read the Sermon on the Mount and go, that can't be true? It's not possible that that's what he means. Again, you hear the serpent going, did God really say that hatred is the baddest murder? Most of you, I say most, there will be some that have stolen things. Most of us would claim we've never stolen anything major. 97% of us would probably say that. But the Bible says, you know, it's not really about stealing, it's about coveting, it's about wanting that in your life. If you want that more, then you want, and if you knew you could get away with it. How many would sin if you just knew you could get away with it? I'm in that category all the time. I mean, the only thing holding you back is you might lose your job, your marriage, your kids, or your freedom. But if those penalties were taken away, you'd do it. So would I. And the Bible says, you know, that's the real problem. That's what makes you so sinful. And you know what? Paul is saying, The law shows us our need for God. If you don't have law, how are you going to know? Shows us our great need. I remember my buddy Fabian. I asked him if I could use this. We're preaching on the Ten Commandments in Bowdoin. And I went through the Ten Commandments. And Fabian was a new Christian or maybe not even a Christian at that time. I don't remember. And we're on the golf course. And I asked Fabian. I said, so Fabes. That's what I call him, Fabes. Fabian. Fabes. What are you learning? We're at like commandment number six. So it's honor your father and mother. I was like, I had a relationship with his mom and dad. So, you know, I had some dirt on him, if he, depending on his answer. Fabes, what are you learning from the Ten Commandments? I really expected that it was like, oh, man, I've I, I got to do this and this and this and this. And you know what he said to me? He's, just before he did his waggle, he's like, I'm learning that I'm in big trouble. <laughs> and something cleared up for me about the law when he said that. I was like... That's the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is basically to show you if you don't have a Savior, you're in big trubs. If you don't have Jesus somehow make up the difference for you, you're not going to get there. You're not going to obey this list. Most of you are not even going to try to do it because it's just too overwhelming and you say I don't like listening to preaching because it just makes me realize how much I need Jesus it's kind of the point of preaching that's the point of the law is just just show you like "Mm, you can't do this on your own you need a savior his name is Jesus believe in him and it all goes away it really does all your guilt all the things that you're trying to deal with go away because Jesus died for you Secondly, the law teaches us what sin really is. Romans 4.15, this is what it says. 
Romans 4.15, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Happened to me right outside this theater. I'm unpacking, you know, doing good things for God, unloading the drum set, because God loves drums, clearly. I'm unloading the drums, bringing them into, and the, uh, the parking guy pulls up behind me. Of course, I'm like, you can't touch me. I'm a holy man, and I'm unloading drums for God. And he's like, uh, is this your truck? He said it like that too. Is this your truck? I'm like, yeah, it's my truck. He's like, well, you're parked wrong. I'm like, well, he's like, well, read the sign. And I read the sign. I was like, oh, oops. The sign clearly says handicapped parking. So I kind of walked with a limp back, you know, moved my truck. But see, what was my response? It was like, I can break, I can break the law because there is no law. It's like, I can park here for 20 minutes. But no, there's a little handicapped wheelchair sign. Without that sign, I don't break the law. But with that sign, I clearly break the law. That's what the, test, that, that's what the law is for, friends. It shows you you break the law. It shows you you can't do this. Thirdly, the law exposes our sin. Do you ever just feel like God is watching you? As you read, you're like, how did you know that I just did this? That's creepy. Or you'll show up in church someday and, and the message will be about this and it'll be the exact thing that you've defied God about and you'll think, that preacher knows way too much about me. The fun thing is, is I just, I just preach through Galatians and let the Holy Spirit do the work and to be honest, it's kind of funny sometimes. It's like, that's exactly what I was dealing with. I'm like, why are you looking at me when you say that? I had nothing to do with that. That was God exposing you. That's what the law does. It exposes your sin. It tells you what you've done wrong. Fourthly, the law condemns us in our sin. We, we're guilty because there's really, there's no loopholes here. There's no loopholes in the law of God. Try to find something that's not covered there. But friends, you'll be looking for the rest of your life. And you know what? That was a major Jewish activity, was finding all the loopholes was like, well, the law of God says this. I remember one preacher who said, there is a law that says you can't travel on the Sabbath, but if you're over water, you can travel on the Sabbath because there's really no way of measuring distance over water. And so you know how this guy defeated this sin? He put a bottle of water underneath his car seat and traveled as far as he wanted because he was over water. I mean, come on. It's like... <laughs> Is God that dumb, really? God's like, oh boy, I'd really like to persecute you, but I can't because you found the loophole. The law doesn't work like this, friends. There aren't loopholes. The Bible says very clearly, all have sinned. I'm using the word all here. All. All have sinned. You're not the exception person to the law. All have sinned and deserve the penalty for sin, which is death, which is, again, tough for us to believe, but that's what the law does. It exposes us and and, and tells us this. But lastly, here's here's what some preaching does that, that, that is difficult preaching to listen to. Preaching that just tells you about the law but doesn't tell you about good news is feels like that, doesn't it? Any of you walked out of a message one time and you're like, oh, I just feel worse about myself. I feel about all the things that I can't do and haven't done yet. And, and if you walked in with a backpack full of bricks, you feel like the preacher just added a number of bricks to your backpack. 
That's because the preacher didn't tell you about the good news because one of the reasons why the law is so dark is to show us how good the gospel is. Have you ever seen like a diamond in a, in a case of some kind? For those of you, uh, anyone like diamonds? Okay, I was, I was thinking, we were in the mall yesterday and I was thinking of that store, Swarovski. Am I saying that right? Swarovski? Whatever. You know what I'm talking about. Anyone not know what I'm talking about? Right, you've seen the store? Okay, it's a, let's, yeah. <laughs> Steve, surprise, you've never been in a mall. Um, uh, it's, it's a dark store. It's like dark, dark, dark red and dark black cases. And, and why is it so dark? Because they're trying to sell like gleaming glass. Why do they do that? So that it looks great. If you had a, like a perfectly white store like an Apple store, Swarovski wouldn't look that great. You'd be like, oh, that's just a bunch of glass that's cut weird. And vice versa, right? The Apple store is white. Why? Because lots of their products are like this shiny, beautiful gray. Or black, so that it just looks crisp and just stands out. And friends, that's what the law is there for. It's this darkness that you go, oh, well, the gospel looks awesome compared to that. Of course it does. And what happens so often is, is when we do gospel minus and we leave sin out, we take away the black background. These letters stand out great. Do you want to know why? Because it's on a black stage. If those letters were on a white stage, you'd be like, dude's got to get better carpentry skills. If we don't have the law, we don't have it stand out like that. Because what my hope is for you is you go, oh yeah, well totally. I'm totally convinced that I don't want to live by the law. There's no hope in that. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Talk to, I, I read some stuff about other religions and, and I read some stuff about the Jewish religion and I'm not being racist here, but I read it and I was like, oh my goodness, this is so hopeless to me. One rabbi was saying, what's the purpose of the law? To earn bonus points with God. <laughs> no thanks, is my response. I'm not going to learn the law of God so that I can earn bonus points with God. I'm having trouble enough as it is. I'll read the law, though, if it reminds me how I don't have to do it. Right? Some of us, that's our life. Hey, we, we, we all show up on the job site on our day off so that we can watch people do what we don't have to do. We're like, yeah, I don't have to do that. Boom. It's awesome. That's what the law is for. The law gives us this dark, hopeless background, this standard that you can never, ever get to, no matter how hard you try, because it's just not for that purpose. And so the last part of the text is, okay, what are you going to choose, friends? This is up to you now. I mean, the choice is obvious, isn't it? If this is true, if this is real, the choice is really obvious. Do you really want to try the law? Paul, I think, would say, go ahead. Try it. Tell me how that works out for you guys. We'll be over here eating bacon and a bunch of other things that the law frees us from. (laughs) You go on and do your circumcision thing and follow that law and we'll be eating bacon and 
chasing, hunting gophers and doing all kinds of great stuff because we're free in the gospel. Now, are there things to do? Is there good works that we're supposed to do? Are good works a part of the Christian life? Because some of you will now respond and go, but wait a second. Does that mean we can do whatever we want? The, the real answer is you don't want to do whatever you want if you really get grace. That's the difference. Someone says, well, I, I believe that, but I want to do whatever I want. I don't think you really want it. If you really love Jesus, if you're really grateful to Jesus, if you really believe that what he's done is enormous, your natural response will be, Jesus, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? What do you want me to say? We, we believe that really highly here. We, we say that everyone who's a Christian is also a missionary. And we say that in conjunction with being saved because sometimes you've been told that you've been saved, but now you just go do whatever you want and, and you figure it out. No, the Bible says no. When you agree to be one of Jesus' children, you agree to be in his family. Any, any of you in a family? You don't get to do whatever you want. Even when you've been given the authority to be in charge of a family, you don't get to do what you want. There are things that you need to do to be part of a family. There's just things you do. That's how a family functions. That's why we spent like 11 weeks on talking about what does it mean to be the family of God. There are things that we do. And so what's, what comes with the promise? Well, the promise offers us this family. That's first of all. Galatians says, we get to be in a family. We get to be in a family. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. It showed up in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under this guardian. The faith... The, the, the law leads us to Jesus. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. You can read that, daughters of God too. You're all part of a family. Family language here. You get to be part of a family. For some of you, this, is, this should be a really big deal because you don't have a family that you love. That your family has rejected you. Your family has left you out of important decisions. Your family is not the family that you had always hoped for. You go home for Christmas and you say, this is not the family I signed up for. I don't like going home for Christmas. For some of you, that's your story. And the, one of the blessings that God promised to Abraham that you get through Jesus, through faith in Jesus, is you're part of a family. You're part of a real family. You're part of a family that loves you and cares for you. Shameless plug for city groups here. That's why we do city groups. That's why that's all we really do here is city groups because we got to learn in our non-family society, how to be a family together. And this is the place where God works. What, what happens next? For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. So we, we have Christ in us. And Christ brings glory to the Father. And so the, the promise then, what does it do? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is now neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring Heirs according to promise. Now, some people have taken this text and used it to describe gender roles. Friends, if you understand the context of Galatians 3, there's no way you can come to that conclusion. Because what this text is saying is, this promise secures us racially. How many of us have ever felt scourged by racism? 
you felt like because of your race that you have less, less access to God than someone else's race. It's a very real thing in the Jewish-Gentile thing because for years, Gentiles have been secondary. And what is secured through the, the gospel, it's no, no more are races going to decide who gets access to God and who doesn't. And so here's what the gospel secures. No matter what race you are, you have equal access to God as any other race. This does not mean there aren't other races. I think sometimes we miss out because we think that the Bible has come to eliminate races. No, the gospel hasn't come to eliminate races. The gospel has come to eliminate the barriers between races. I think different races are great. Seriously, if you had all white people like me, would this place not be a disaster? We need different races with different cultures, with different languages, with different ethnicities that do different things, that have different ways of seeing things. But what we don't need is people saying those people are less in God's sight than these people and the gospel has come to eliminate this. That's why anything that claims to be Christian that also claims to be racist cannot be Christian. It can't be. That's what the gospel came to eliminate. What, is it, what else does it do? The promise secures our equality not based upon our stature. How many of you are dealing with this right now with your identity? You feel less of a person because you're not in charge. If you've ever been a boss and then not been a boss, you've wrestled with this probably. Because you feel less because you're now not a boss. And the Bible says the gospel does not base its access to God on your importance at work or not importance at work. That whether you're a slave or free, slavery is not very common now. Some of you would beg to differ because you work for the government. But this was a very real deal then. And if you were a slave, you were nothing in that society. And if you were a slave owner, you were everything in that society. And the Bible is saying, you can't place your identity in anything that you do. Your identity is now in Christ and it levels the playing field. And so that's why our church family should be made up of bosses and employees, of people who have lots of authority in our culture and people who don't have any authority at all in our culture. Because the gospel brings these two together and somehow makes a family out of these kinds of people. What else does the gospel do? See, here's where the gospel secures our equality regardless of our gender. It doesn't decide gender roles. That's another issue. To me, that's, that's, it's silly to bring up gender roles on the basis of Galatians 3 because it's not talking about gender roles. In fact, it's saying gender roles are in place. What it's really saying is that your gender does not decide your access to the faith in Jesus Christ. Again, to go back to this culture, women are here, children are here, men are here. And Paul is being countercultural and saying, no, 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 it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether you are a Gentile slave woman. You have access to God just like anyone else. Some of you need to hear that because you feel like you're low on the totem pole of God's chosen people. Because you don't, you don't have gifts that others have. You don't have this that other people have. You don't have the long history. You've sinned a lot and you're really sorry about it. And you don't know what else to do. And you feel like, oh, I'm just, I'm just a loser part of this church. The gospel says, no, you're not. 
And it keeps those who think that they're, because they've been in church, because they've served, because they have gifts, it keeps them humble and says, no, you don't get to just waltz around here and act like you're more important to God than anyone else. Now, friends, choice is yours. What do you want to do? You want to live by the law? Promises nothing but hopelessness, despair, frustration, incompleteness. You'll, you'll never get to it. You'll never finish it. Or do you want to believe in the promises of God so that everything's made right through Jesus? I got new identity. I got new equality. I got a, a new Savior. I got someone who doesn't base their love upon me by what I do for them, bases their love on, upon me because I'm just one of his or her children. It's your choice, friends. That's what Paul says. Good time to celebrate the Lord's table. Good time. This is something we do every week here at Urban Grace. This really should feel a lot like a family meal, except you probably eat more at a family meal. That's fair. One day we'll do a big feast and we'll all eat together. This family meal reminds you that you're part of the family of God. That's what it's there for. You need to take it in faith. If you're not a Christian here today, by taking this doesn't make you in the family of God. It won't earn your way into the family of God. That is done through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian, here's what I would say to you. Believe that and then come and take of a symbol that reminds you that you're part of the family of God. And for those of you who just need to hear it again, come and celebrate and say, thank you, Jesus that you have drawn me into your family. Thank you that you have not based my standing in this family upon what I do, but upon what you have done. And Jesus, help me to live like you want me to live. And we'll deal with that in the rest of Galatians. But now I just invite you to come and respond to Jesus. That's what our songs are designed for. So now you can sing songs of response. How are you going to respond to Jesus? You're going to believe in Jesus' free gift, you're going to try your own way of living by the law.